The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Research Professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri. You can find more from Dr. DeRoshi at www.jasonderoshi.com. Greetings, brothers and sisters. I'm Jason DeRoshi, Research Professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Thanks for joining in here. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you that you are for us and not against us, that you've disclosed yourself and your will in a way that we can understand. Thank you for your book. Lead us to truth this day. For the glory of Christ, I pray. Amen. The hermeneutical significance of the shape of the Christian canon. Brevard Childs correctly notes, it's historically inaccurate to assume that the present printed form of the Hebrew and Christian Bible represent ancient and completely fixed traditions. Actually, the present stability regarding the ordering of the books is to a great extent dependent on modern printing techniques and carries no significant theological weight, end quote. Religious communities have been responsible for the present order of the biblical books. But we must ask whether historical and theological priority should be given to any one canonical structure over another, most specifically when doing biblical theology. Elsewhere, I argue that biblical theology is a way of analyzing and synthesizing what the Bible reveals about God and his relations with the world that makes organic salvation historical and literary canonical connections with the whole of Scripture on its own terms, especially with respect to how the Old and New Testaments progress, integrate, and climax in Christ. So is the order of the canon significant when considering how the whole Bible progresses, integrates, and climaxes in Jesus? A number of factors move me to answer with a qualified yes, and my response will come in three stages. First, the study overviews the nature and limits of the biblical canon, Second, it assesses how much ancient canon consciousness included not simply which books, but also their ordering. And third, it considers ways that canonical arrangement could and should inform a Christian's interpretive conclusions in relation to biblical theology. The nature and limits of the biblical canon. The Christian canon is the church's authoritative collection of holy books. God ordered the whole through human agents, and it's made up of what we now call the Old and the New Testaments. The Protestant Old Testament canon is made up of 39 books, and the Jewish Bible is identical with it in content, but consists of 24 books that are divided and arranged differently. The New Testament has 27 books with some known variation in ordering. The word canon derives from the Hebrew term kaneh, meaning reed, which came to signify a measuring stick. The term entered into Greek as kanon and was applied more broadly to represent various exemplary standards of measurement, whether literary, legal, or human. Both historically and theologically, the concepts of canon and covenant correlate. The essence of canon is bound up in the authoritative written word of a covenant lord. Recipients recognized that the, rather than decided the canonical status of the scriptural texts in light of their source, we identify and affirm the Bible is canonical, that is authoritative, because it is by nature the very word of the living God. 
The application of the term canon to scripture does not occur until the fourth century AD, but the concept was set at least as early as the days of Moses and carried on through the shaping of the scriptures and through the period following the New Testament. As the canon grew, the concept became associated not only with an authoritative and normative body of literature, that is, canon as rule, but also with specific boundaries and shaping of that literature, that is, canon as list. Evidence of early canon consciousness. The ancients bore a rich canon consciousness with respect to the scripture, as is evident from the biblical witness to its own authority. The identification in and outside the Bible of a sacred canonical body of material and the presence of ancient biblical book lists. Significantly, while the latter witness some variation, there is strong evidence that at least at some levels, groups and arrangement matter. This fact suggests that a proper view of canon affirms that God not only gave us books, but progressively shaped a book, scripture as a whole, with Old and New Testaments, and that the order and the relationship of the parts actually influences the overall meaning. First, from its earliest stages, the Bible attests to its own authority and to its being recognized as bearing canonical status. Yahweh's written word through Moses demanded allegiance, and God's binding and unalterable law was to guide both Israel's king and community in the promised land. Following Moses' death, a collection of sacred covenantal texts, very akin to what we now know of as Genesis through Deuteronomy or as the law, was associated with Moses' authority and substantial authorship. And each literary scene between the various divisions of the Hebrew Bible gives this collection foundational, canonical status. As such, part of analyzing and synthesizing the Bible on its own terms is, requires that we follow the lead of the Old Testament itself and interpret everything outside of the Mosaic Law collection in light of it. I will say more about this shortly. Now, in the New Testament, Jesus and the apostles had a Bible that had expanded far beyond Moses' five books, and they viewed the whole as the authoritative word of God. Jesus believed that what Moses wrote in the law, God himself said, and that David spoke by the Holy Spirit. Jesus also put the authority of Scripture above Satan and his own human preference, and above the distortions of the Jewish leaders of his own day. Jesus believed that all scripture would be fulfilled and that knowing the scriptures could help a person avoid both doctrinal error and hell. People today are to believe Moses' writings, and even the small affirmations cannot be broken. Furthermore, Paul treated Jesus' words in the Gospels as his own, and his own words as canonically authoritative, and Peter viewed Paul's words as bearing the same scriptural status as other sacred texts. Second, as we move into the intertestamental and New Testament periods, the concept of canon is evident in the way the Jews spoke of their sacred collection of texts, the whole of which they believed had expanded far beyond Moses' foundational writings. What we now tag the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament, they spoke of in various ways. At times, they used one-part titles like the law or the holy scriptures or writings or this, this, just the scriptures. Other times they employed a two-part designation like the law and the prophets or Moses and the prophets or the law of Moses and the prophets. 
and still other times, likely citing the identical canonical body of material, they adopted a three-part heading, like the Law of Moses and the Prophets and the Psalms, the Law, the Prophets, and the rest of the books, or the Book of Moses, the Book of the Prophets, and David. Now, some of these designations occur centuries before the New Testament, and their very presence identifies a high canon consciousness that was tied in some way to structure. Third, we have a series of early lists of Old and New Testament books that together highlight that certain writings were sacred and that they were viewed in certain groupings and orders. Now, assessing the scant yet complex data is difficult. But there are a number of features that are evident with respect to the Old Testament. Two of the earliest lists of the Hebrew scriptures are Jewish, and you can see these in figure one. While they portray different arrangements, they're both tripartite and together support the conviction that prophecy had temporarily ceased after Malachi, and that long before the New Testament age, perhaps reaching as far back as the days of Ezra, what we call the Old Testament was already a fixed canonical standard likely held and controlled at the temple. Of the Old Testament, Gallagher and Mead also note that the earliest Christian lists from the first and through the fourth centuries attest to a very stable collection that is consistently mirrored, that consistently mirrored the Jewish canon, though in different orderings. Now, the first Jewish list comes to us from the historian Josephus in Against Apian 8.37 to 43, roughly around 8094 to 117. He doesn't register the books themselves, but he speaks of a closed list of 22 inspired books that had guided the Jews for centuries and that bore a three-part structure, though different than the structure in Baba Batra 14b, which I will note in a second. In alignment with his role as historian, Josephus grouped the biblical books by genre and chronology and apparently used the 22-letter Hebrew alphabet to fix his number. The five books of Moses from the beginning to his death. Thirteen prophets who recorded history from the death of Moses all the way to the reign of Artaxerxes, likely joining Judges and Ruth and Jeremiah and Lamentations in order to make the total count of 22. And then there's four remaining books that included various hymns and instructions. This is what Josephus tells us. Gallagher and Mead note, many Jews, all according to Josephus, received these books as authoritative by the late first century. And it is unlikely that such reception constituted a radical change from the previous situation, especially in the absence of ancient statements disputing the status of these books, end quote. That Josephus does not actually list the books themselves may suggest that his record was not an official ordering. Now, the second Jewish list is the ancient rabbinic Baraita, Baba Batra 14b, an Eastern tradition that is in the Jewish oral law, but not incorporated into the Mishnah. Baba Batra 14b comes from the rabbinic scholars known as the Tanayim, who lived during the initial two centuries AD and whose work was later included in the Babylonian Talmud. It lists 24 biblical books and also differentiates a three-part structure, the law, the prophets, the writings. Here, however, chronology, theology, and literary artistry guide the arrangement, most notably with Ruth and Chronicles being a part of the third division and the historical narrative books, the law, the former prophets, and the latter writings framing 
what could be termed non-narrative commentary books. That is, the latter prophets and the former writings. Look at figure two. Books, these commentary books, are those whose purpose it is not to detail the progress of redemptive history, but actually to explain and interpret and guide our reading of it. The major prophets are out of chronological order. It's not Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Similarly, Ruth is, not totally se is, is totally separated from its temporal context after Judges. Daniel is not found among the prophets. And Chronicles and Ezra and Nehemiah are placed in reverse chronological order. The narrative runs chronologically from Genesis to Kings. It pauses from Jeremiah all the way up to Lamentations. And then it resumes again in Daniel and moves us to Ezra and Nehemiah with Chronicles then recalling the story all the way back from Adam to Cyrus's decree that Israel can return. Now, as for the commentary books, these latter prophets structure the books, the four books, largest to smallest, and the former writings follow the exact same pattern, except Ruth prefaces the Psalter and the longer Lamentations follows Song of Songs. So Ruth comes before the Psalter, what that does is it gives the Psalter, it places it in the context of Davidic hope. And the placing of Lamentations allows for Jeremiah's writings to frame the whole unit. It allows Solomon's three volumes, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Songs, to remain together. And then Lamentations is able to reorient the reader to the exilic context where kings left off and where the narrative in Daniel picks up. Now. Outside these two lists, we do not find alternative Jewish arrangements of the Hebrew scriptures until very much later, in the middle part of the medieval period from the Western Masoretic tradition. Think Aleppo Codex in 925 or the Leningrad Codex in 81,008 or 9. And then after that, it's not until the medieval period is finished in the 16th century that we find the second rabbinic Bible. Now, furthermore, of the two early Jewish lists, Baba Batra 14b most closely aligns with the New Testament's internal testimony regarding the structure of Jesus's Bible. And therefore, it's Baba Batra that most likely represents the standard listing found at the temple. Specifically, the Jewish Bible that Jesus and the apostles used bore a three-part structure that included Psalms as the largest and first main book in the third division with Ruth apparently serving as a preface. Jesus' statement following his resurrection gives biblical support for this structure, for he appears to use Psalms as the title for the whole third division. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled, Luke 24, 44. Also, the biblical data suggests that the Bible of the earliest church began with Genesis and ended with Chronicles, just like Baba Batra 14b. Once, we, once when Jesus was confronting the Pharisees, he spoke of the martyrdom of the Old Testament prophets from the blood of Abel all the way up to the blood of Zechariah, Luke eleven fifty one. 51. And as we know, this is not a simple A to Z statement for Zechariah's name doesn't begin with the last letter of any biblical language alphabet. Also, it's not strictly a chronological statement. For while Abel was the first martyr, the Old Testament's last martyr with respect to time was Uriah, the son of Shemaiah, who died during the reign of Jehoiakim, 
See Jeremiah 26.20. Jesus seems to have speaking, been speaking canonically by mentioning the first and the last martyr in the literary structure of his Bible. Just as Genesis records Abel's murder, it's the end of Chronicles that highlights a certain Zechariah who was killed in the temple court during the reign of Joash, 2 Chronicles 24, 20 through 21. Now, with respect to the New Testament, many of the earliest Christian lists, whether in Greek or in Latin, include both Testaments or just the New Testament. However, the earliest complete 27-book record comes in AD 367, in Athanasius's 39th Festal Letter, in which he identified the canonical New Testament books so as to distinguish those that didn't bear such authority. His registry looks very similar to our present-day English Bible lists, except that he places the seven Catholic epistles, that is, James through Jude, directly after Acts, following a common Greek manuscript tradition. He also includes Hebrews with Paul's letters, which was also quite common in the East, and he places Hebrews before the pastorals. As early as the second century, however, the church widely accepted the collection of the four Gospels, the seven Catholic epistles, and Paul's letters with 13 in the West or 14 in the East, plus or minus Hebrews, along with Acts and Revelation. So while it's difficult to assess due to the paucity of evidence for the Catholic epistles prior to the 4th century AD, Trobisch actually proposes that the New Testament canon was likely fixed as early as AD 125 and originally bore the structure that matches Athanasius' list. You can see figure 3 on the handout. Now, it's noteworthy that Trobisch's proposed earliest order of the New Testament books, aligning with Athanasius's arrangement, follows the same generic structure of Jesus' Hebrew Bible. That is, narrative, narrative, commentary, commentary, narrative. A number of scholars propose that the structure of the New Testament canon may have actually been influenced by the earliest Christian Greek Old Testament lists, which regularly place the historical narrative books up front and end with the prophetic books, just like our English Bibles. However, when Revelation, while not strictly historical narrative, is viewed as prophetic narrative, completing the storyline begun in the Old Testament and then carried on in the Gospels and Acts, then the generic structure parallels become apparent between Baba Batra 14b, the likely structure of Jesus' Bible, and the New Testament of the early church. Also, the Gospels, Acts, and Revelation provide a progressive historical narrative and then the commentary books, that is, the epistles, are generally arranged from longest to shortest, just like the commentary books in Bababatra 14b. Look at figure four. So what exactly is the significance of canonical arrangement for biblical theology? And what I'm going to do here is call for you and the rest of the church to be reading our Bible like Jesus and the apostles. The data above clearly identify that before the invention of the Codex, that is the modern book, canonical groupings of scrolls were at times associated with certain arrangements. Not only do we have single, double, and tripartite designations of the Hebrew scriptures, we also find Baba Batra 14b, sometime dated in the first two centuries, showing significant concern for their arrangement. Similarly, the Christian list from Melito of Sardis in 
8170 and Athanasius of Alexandria in 8367 show similar interest in book placement within the whole of the Christian scriptures. Canonical consciousness related to God's word included the ordering of the whole and not just the presence of individual books. Archaeological evidence suggests that before the Codex, ancient archives and libraries often stored canonical scrolls in specific groupings and arrangements, thus highlighting that canonical consciousness could actually include collection of books placed in specific orders. That ancient biblical canon designations and lists highlight both the Jewish Bible's tripartite grouping and specific sequences suggests a similar process could have been at work in ancient Israel. Gallagher and Mead proposed that before the 3rd or 4th century AD, when the Bible moved from being a collection of scrolls to a full-blown codex, we should think about arrangement on a more conceptual rather than physical level. But even if this is so, that the mental construct included macrostructure and arrangement is still significant. As Spellman observes, as the Hebrew Bible formed, the groupings of law, prophets, and writings became an overarching framework by which to order the biblical material. Thus, when readers picked up a portion of a biblical scroll, they had to locate that portion that they were holding conceptually in relation to the other writings held. The same practice would have applied in the writing and reading of any New Testament document, end quote. Much like the book of Psalms, which was inspired over a thousand-year period, culminating in God leading editors to shape its final form into five distinct books, it's possible that we should actually think about the Christian Bible in the same way, God leading not only individual authors to give us books, but also guiding editors to give us one book, shaped progressively in two parts, Old and New Testaments. We've observed that the internal witness of the New Testament is that Jesus' Hebrew Bible had three divisions, the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings, that began with Genesis and ended with Chronicles, and that had Psalms as the first main book of the third division. Thus, Hamilton notes, the authors, authors of the New Testament themselves both assume the Hebrew order of the, of the books of the Old Testament and take for granted that their audience will also know that order. He then rightly queries, if Jesus is on record with a statement about how he views the organization of the books of the Old Testament, why would his followers organize the Old Testament any other way? In a quest to read the Old Testament scriptures like Jesus and the apostles, it seems most natural that we would want to read the whole in the arrangement that shaped their thinking. It's possible that only when we account for features of arrangement that we will fully grasp the unified message that Jesus, Paul, Peter, and the others interpreted regarding the tribulation and the triumph of the Messiah and the mission that he would spark. As for the New Testament, we also know that the most likely historical reconstruction of Jesus' Bible, Baba Batra 14b, discloses a generic structure that parallels that of the New Testament. Narrative in the Law and the Gospels, narrative in the Four Prophets and Acts, commentary in the Latter Prophets and Catholic Epistles, commentary in the Former Writings and Paul's Epistles and Hebrews, and finally narrative in the Latter Writings and Revelation. We thus see that the Old and New Testaments as a whole show signs of intentional shaping toward a common goal, a quality potentially testifying to the hand of a supreme author.
in light of the way that early canon consciousness included both the authority and order of the sacred collection of books, there are at least four ways in which arrangement matters when engaging the discipline of biblical theology. Number one, biblical theology requires prioritizing the law and the gospels. A proper biblical theological method requires that we prioritize the law of Moses in the old and the gospels in the new. For each grouping of books details how God established the foundational covenant, old and new, that shapes how we understand each testament. In the Old Testament, all books written after Moses presume both the presence of his words in Genesis through Deuteronomy and the covenantal context they describe. What Moses writes guides how later narrators detail Israel's history from the conquest all the way to Jerusalem's demise and then through the exile to initial restoration. The narrative itself highlights the nation's ruin, how it was an act of divine covenantal curse and fully due to Israel and Judah's failure to heed the words of Moses that he proclaimed through the prophets. Furthermore, the, the story identifies that the faithful kings retained a high level of canon consciousness. Think David and Josiah, whereas the unfaithful did not. Think Jehoiakim. Accordingly, the prophets made their indictments, their instructions, and their predictions of punishment or restoration blessing, all in light of Moses' law. And the sages built their prayers and wisdom upon it. Moses' five books give shape to the problems that Christ solves. They formalize or anticipate all of Scripture's covenants. Both biblical and theological themes sorry, most biblical and theological themes and most typological shadows originate in the law. And every canonical seam between the law, the prophets, and the writings in Jesus's Bible included reference to the authority of Moses's writings. These realities identify that a faithful biblical theology requires that we treat the five books of Moses up front in scripture so that they supply a framework or a lens through which we must read everything else. This is likely why every known canonical list and order begins with the law. Furthermore, as recorded in the four Gospels, Jesus' teaching and work shape and clarify all further instruction and supply a lens for faithfully reading Scripture as a whole. Acts and Revelation develop that history and the future of the church by identifying how the reign of God that Christ inaugurated is then expanded by means of his spirit and will culminate in the final judgment and a glorious consummate state. The book of Hebrews opens by asserting its foundation. In these last days, God has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Hebrews 1, 2, and 3. Similarly, as Moose states, the author of James seems to have been so soaked in the atmosphere and specifics of Jesus' teaching that he, can, that he can reflect them almost unconsciously, end quote. Paul, too, knew well the teachings of Christ. He stresses numerous times how his own encounter with the resurrected Jesus reshaped his outlook on all reality. The church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone, Ephesians 2.20. While the New Testament does not explicitly draw on the Gospels at the same rate that the Old Testament draws on Moses' law, due substantially to the fact that the 
substantially to the fact that later, uh, the Gospels came later in their writing, there'd be no New Testament were it not for the life, death, and resurrection of Christ and the spirit empowerment his ascension secured. Therefore, taking scripture on its own terms requires that we prioritize the portrait of Christ in the Gospels and see it as the lens for interpreting all the rest of the New Testament and as the lens for even interpreting the Old. All early New Testament canon lists place the Gospels up front. Number two, biblical theology requires interpreting the biblical story in succession. Proper biblical theological method, method requires interpreting the Bible's story in the way that it was that it came in, in space and time. Historical narrative books frame both Jesus' Bible and the New Testament. The people God used to providentially arrange these books intentionally place them in chronological succession to clarify God's perspective on how the peoples and events of space and time relate to his kingdom purposes. The story moves from creation to new creation, from old cursed world in Adam to the new blessed world in Christ. The progress of five covenants from the Adamic Noahic, the Abrahamic, the Mosaic, the Davidic, the new, all of this drives the grand storyline. All of these covenants progress and integrate and climax in Jesus, building or in Jesus Christ. Building organic connections within the canon itself requires that we read this redemptive story in succession, with Christ standing as the ultimate end and ultimate goal of all of its history, its law, and its promises. All scripture points to Christ, and by fulfilling all previous anticipations, he provides the lens for interpreting the whole. Yet we only properly see and understand his central role if we read the story in its proper order. Now, significantly, the Christian Bible includes more than historical narrative, and the narrative portions themselves contain numerous subgenres. But the scripture also includes the latter prophets, the former writings, the Catholic epistles, and Paul's epistles in Hebrews. Four large groupings of poetic, prophetic and hortatory books that together provide commentary on the storyline by informing and guiding our understanding of the broader plot. As such, we'll grasp scripture's overarching message when we clear, only when we clearly read the narrative in light of the commentary books and vice versa. Number three, Biblical theology requires accounting for Scripture's progress from old to new centered on Christ. When we engage in biblical theology, we must account for how the Old Testament progresses to the New Testament in light of the person and work of Jesus. Scripture teaches that there are only two major redemptive historical epochs, before Christ and after Christ. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, Luke 16, 16. Or the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now, now that faith has come, we are no longer under the guardian, Galatians 3, 24 through 25. The biblical theological task requires that we read the Old Testament as the foundation 
for how Christ in the New Testament fulfills God's promises. And it also requires that we see in Christ the mystery revealed that unlocks the full meaning of the Old Testament. Number four, biblical theology requires that we recognize canonical arrangement influences reading no matter what. Doing biblical theology demands that we assess intertextual connections that are always informed by a book's placement, regardless of how one's canon is arranged. As Goswell observes, where a biblical book is placed relative to other books inevitably influences a reader's view of that book. On the supposition that juxtaposed books are related in some way and therefore illuminate each other. As prescribed, a prescribed order of books is de facto interpretation of the text, end quote. For example, following the arrangement of our English Bibles, many Bible reading plans will place First and Second Chronicles directly after First and Second Kings, which can cause one to feel like the same story is being retold, but just in different words. However, when First and Second Chronicles is separated from Kings and placed at the end of the Hebrew Scriptures, its message is much more naturally viewed as more hopeful, pointing ahead to the fulfillment of the Davidic kingdom promises and the satisfaction in God's presence that the New Testament realizes in the person of Jesus. Irrespective of what canonical ordering one utilizes, the position in which one reads a given book will likely affect one's biblical theology. Conclusion and Summary the concept of a biblical canon is fundamental to the whole interpretive exercise. When we align with the views of the biblical authors and their contemporaries, we see the need to equally stress canon as rule, authority, or norm, and canon as list, including tangible boundaries and shaping. This essay has argued that failing to recognize the significance of a canon that is both rule and list can lead us astray when it comes to engaging in biblical theology. Stewart writes, an orthodox understanding of canonization holds that the contents of the biblical canon are a matter of divine inspiration, but that the specific order of the contents may have been left in large measure to human agency. While this common view accounts for the plethora of early orders of books among the lists and manuscripts, and you can see that in figures five and six, it neither accounts for at least some of the explicit features of the canon itself, nor for the nature of reading, all of which necessitate that biblical theology regard canonical arrangement in at least a qualified way. Along with seeking to approach the Hebrew scriptures in the arrangement that Jesus and his apostles did, which included the order of law, prophets, and writings, the Bible as a whole requires first that we treat the five books of Moses and the four gospels as foundational for how we interpret the rest of God's word. Second, we must read in succession the story of salvation recounted in the narrative books, while allowing the messages of the non-narrative commentary books to inform our reading. Third, we must always see the Old Testament as the theological basis of the New Testament, and the New Testament's revelation of Christ as the goal to which the Old Testament points and the lens through which the Old Testament is read. Fourth, we must recognize that the location of a given book in any canonical structure informs our biblical theological interpretation. When assessing and synthesizing how the Bull Bible progresses, integrates, and climaxes in Christ, 
interpreters must approach the canon of scripture as authoritative and as normative and in light of its boundaries and shape. In at least a qualified way, the order of the biblical books matters when doing biblical theology. There is hermeneutical significance to the shape of the Christian canon. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this message from Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Research Professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Dr. Jason DeRoshi. For more information about Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, we invite you to visit www.mbts.edu. For more writings, sermons, and lectures from Dr. DeRoshi, please visit www.jasonderoshi.com. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for his glory in Christ.